0: All right, welcome everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we have something very exciting to talk about a product that will absolutely contribute to your improved health that has been outlawed, yes, illegal in the United States for nearly a century, since 1938. And that natural product is hemp. It's been vilified, and thankfully, Donald Trump signed into law the Farm Bill at the closing of 2018, and now hemp is legal. And to discuss and elaborate on the exciting potential implications of this change in the law, we have an expert in phytocannabinoids, who is a board-certified clinical nutritionist from the state of New York, and it's Carl Gerano.
1: Thank you, Dr. McColl. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Well, it's I'm very excited to discuss this topic. So perhaps we can start, uh, maybe just start about how the laws change, because you've been following it very closely, and this, just to explain what that means, and then help differentiate uh, that the difference between hemp and CBD products. We're not the same, even though CBD is in hemp. You can't sell a product with hemp legally, at least.
1: Correct. And and in order to understand all of this, is to kind of distinguish and differentiate between hemp and marijuana because they seem to be interchangeable with people, but it is actually two different plants, so to speak. Um, Both are considered cannabis sativa by genus and species, but that's where the similarity ends. Hemp has been cultivated for many reasons uh, and for the past few thousand years, uh, food, clothing, fiber, fuel. And in the plant itself, it contains these naturally occurring, active compounds called phytocannabinoids, of which CBD is just one of them. Marijuana, on the other hand, has been cultivated for its primary phytocannabinoid THC, and while it has recreational value at small levels, it does have medicinal value. Nevertheless, many decades ago, hemp has been dumped into the definition of marijuana, Mm -hmm. and hemp was dumped into the Controlled Substances Act which kind of hampered its access, uh, its ability to have US farmers grow it, or to have either medical or academic institutions actually study it. And so we've been in the dark ages for decades, and thanks to Israel and Europe who've championed all the research, uh, we've unraveled something like no other out there, and that is the discovery of the cannabinoid system in the body and what that means. But getting back to your question, yes, Trump did sign a farm bill that finally deregulates hemp, finally takes it out of the Control Substances Act, which it should never have been there in the first place. And so it gives the rights of farmers to grow it, it will open up the doors for academic and medical institutions to study it, and it will give access to consumers. Uh, this important plant that is probably the most important botanical we have on this planet. And you'll get to see that as we go on. Well, great. And
0: the difference is I understand, I just want to make sure that people understand it, that it's still possible to uh, sell hemp. It is now possible to sell hemp legally, but uh, there are many companies who are selling CBD and maybe it's just from hemp, but if they say CBD on the label, that is a problem. Essentially, it's making a claim because CBD is classified as, a, I believe, a Schedule II drug. And GDW Pharma earlier this year got the patent on it, so there's going to be some major problems. So you can sell whole hemp, which is better for a whole variety of reasons, than single CBD, which we'll discuss about shortly. So why don't you expand yes. on that
1: important topic? Um, simply stated, the hemp plant has over a hundred different phytocannabinoids of which cbd is only one now the controlled substances act that held hemp hostage which has now been released from the signing of the bill takes dea out of the picture because dea has jurisdiction over the control substances act it does absolutely nothing to fda's position on labeling a supplement or an ingredient that comes into the dietary supplement industry. And this all boils back to the Dietary Supplement and Health and Education Act, DSHE, uh, that was passed into law in 1994, that says a few simple things. Number one, if a substance was not in commerce prior to 1994, it can't be grandfathered as a dietary supplement. Well, certainly CBD was not in commerce prior to 1994. Hemp oil from various parts of the plant was, and so that is okay. The second thing about the Deshaies Law says, well, okay, if it wasn't grandfathered, then you have an option. You can you can s- submit a new dietary ingredient application. If that was done today for CBD, it would get rejected in three seconds because the other part of Deshaies says, if Big Pharma takes a natural ingredient, makes drugs that get approved, Hands off to the dietary supplement industry. So now you have two strikes against CBD being placed on a label, stating it's a, it's a dietary supplement. This is not too dissimilar to the red yeast rice story that we have in our trade. Red yeast rice, a food. Hemp oil, a, few, a food. Sorry red about that. Rice. Sorry about it. You're
0: going to have to repeat it. I, uh, I neglected to turn off my landline. It's not a cell phone, so let me just make sure that it's out. Apologize about that, my mistake. Uh, what do you okay. want me to pick up? Um, it's gone okay. Uh, pick up. Well, let's start after the Deschet Act. You're, you're, you're answering this exactly the way I wanted to, so you're doing great.
1: Okay, so uh, with the passage of Deschet, you have several things against CBD. Number one. CBD was not in commerce prior to 1994, so it could not have been grandfathered as a dietary supplement, yet hemp oil has uh, been in commerce prior to 1994, so we're okay there. Secondly, the other part of the Deshaies Law states that if you want to submit a new dietary ingredient application, you can do so to prove to the FDA whether or not this ingredient can be deemed a dietary supplement. Well, if you were to do that today, it would get rejected in three seconds because the other part of the Shay states, if Big Pharma takes a natural ingredient and makes drugs that get approved, it's hands off to the dietary supplement industry. So GW Pharmaceuticals has two drugs using isolated, purified CBD in it. And therefore, we've got several strikes against putting CBD on the front panel, calling it a dietary supplement, And I say, why bother? Because yes, the story is much bigger than CBD, uh, and both clinically, scientifically, and legally. And why bang heads with the FDA right now? This is not too dissimilar than the red yeast rice story we have in our trade. Red yeast rice a food, hemp oil a food. Red yeast rice has lovastatin in it, and we cannot put that on the label, but we could put the class of compounds, monocolons, which companies are doing. Well, the same thing here, hemp oil is a food, it's got CBD in it, it's still in a gray area, but it has a larger class of compounds called phytocannabinoids, of which CBD is one, and CBD is not alone, and cannot truly support the body's cannabinoid system by itself, you need the rest of the family there anyway. So again, from a scientific, clinical and legal standpoint, it makes no sense to put CBD on the label and calling it a dietary supplement.
0: Thank you for explaining that and helping clear up a lot of the confusion on this, because I myself was confused uh, prior to the Farm Bill passing, because I thought that GW Pharma's patenting of this and and classifying CBD as a drug was the end of CBD oil, but actually it's kind of good news and, and, and I want you to answer, uh, expand on this a little bit with respect to the cost of, of GW Pharmaceuticals. I have no idea what the cost is, but my guess is it's really high. They have to recover their investments and, and sell it at profit, of course, but even if you got their CBD product for free, it is nowhere near as getting the complete whole plant product with the more than 100 phytocannabinoids that's in, that's in a plant like hemp. And um, so, I'm, so why don't you uh, mm-hmm. expand on that because it's uh, re- really exciting news. Right.
1: Look, those of us in botanical medicine understand that the sum of all the parts of the plant is greater than any one single ingredient. And that's a widely held view that natural products are much better than the single isolated compounds pulled from them. And no different here. Let's face it. There's more than one ginsinicide in ginseng. There's more than one curcuminoid in curcumin. There's more than one isobutylamide in echinacea. There's more than one ginkolide in ginkgo. Well, there's more than just one phytocannabinoid in hemp other than CBD. And back in 2013, Dr. Ethan Russo in the British Journal of Pharmacology wrote it best. talked about the entourage effect of all the phytocannabinoids and terpenes needing to be present to give rise to full clinical meaningful benefit so we're no different here and that the story is much more important and greater when we look at providing the whole family now while cbd may be the most dominant phytocannabinoid in hemp the others are there in minor in number but they are not minor in the body as they all participate in nourishing supporting the endocannabinoid system, which is the bigger story.
0: Okay, so why don't you expand on the endocannabinoid system, uh, which implies that these cannabinoids and plants are actually uh, working on a natural, on a, 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 a receptors in the brain and the body that were designed there from the from the beginning, and these these are uh, absolutely natural approaches.
1: Right. And while the endocannabinoid system has been discovered in the decade of the 1990s, uh, genetically it dates back over 600 million years ago in single cell organisms to invertebrates, humans, you have it. And the 1990s was an important decade of discovery. It was a decade of discovery that we have cannabinoid receptors and that we make compounds in our body that actually touch and influence these receptors. Now, to understand this whole story is to look and go back to high school. We've all studied all of our physiological systems, respiratory, digestive, immune, cardiovascular, on and on and on. Well, right in the middle, orchestrating all communication between all of our organ systems and physiological functioning is this massive series of receptors touching every organ, including the skin, Receptors that communicate and orchestrate massive communication throughout the body. So your endocannabinoid system is like the conductor of the, of the orchestra, and the orchestra are our organ systems. And we cannot be healthy, we cannot be well, if our endocannabinoid system does not function well. So what did we discover in the 1990s? We discovered primarily two receptors, CB1 and CB2. And while people have simplified this by saying CB1 primarily in the brain, CB2 primarily in the immune system, it's found all over the body. Both receptors are found in every single organ, while some may be concentrated more in, in other areas. Um, we find both CB1, CB2 receptors throughout the entire body. Now. We have these receptors that accept cannabinoids. So the first question is well, with all these receptors touching every organ system and therefore influencing all physiological functioning, the body must be making something to target and influence them. And in the late 1990s, we discovered we produce cannabinoids. So I tell the whole world get over it. Your body produces cannabinoids similar structurally to the cannabinoids found in cannabis, and your body feeds off of them. And if you don't produce enough, to feed every single receptor, various conditions, various illnesses will ensue. Now, the two cannabinoids that have been discovered, one is called anandamide, from the word ananda, uh, the Sanskrit word meaning bliss, because it touches the CB1 receptors that THC touches, and then the other is 2 arachidonylglycerol glycerol, or simply 2-AG, uh, which is found again all over the body. Now. The brains behind the discovery have been Dr. Raphael Mosholem at a Hebrew University in Jerusalem, and all of his colleagues out of the National Institute of Mental Health, um, Devane, Haynes, uh, um, Hewlett, Herkeman, uh, there's been a number of players, but those are the brains behind uh, the discovery. The endocannabinoid system has been the subject of many scholarly textbooks. They talk about the endocannabidiome, the endocannabinoid system, endocannabinoids. And quite frankly, this is something that should be taught from high school to college to practitioner school. And unfortunately, because of the stigma attached to cannabinoids, that we were not able to study this here in the United States, uh, a survey by Dr. David Allen of over 150 medical schools demonstrated that less than 13% are teaching the endocannabinoid system. And I say to you, are you insane? Are you telling me, this is like me saying that for the next 70 years, we will not teach the cardiovascular system as if it never existed. And so we now have to dismantle the medical travesty. We just dismantled the botanical travesty by freeing up hemp. Uh, And now we have to dismantle this medical travesty of not educating not only future physicians uh, in our country and in the world. Existing even-
0: physicians too.
1: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the, the whole thing is about education, and this is critical and crucial. We have to dismantle the stigma, and we have to start educating ourselves to understand that the endocannabinoid system is probably one of the most important medical discoveries in quite some time again, understanding the enormity of the system and what it does and what it influences throughout the entire human body.
0: Terrific. So why don't you elaborate on some of the problems, complications, or disease processes that occur as a result of us, A, not producing enough of our own endocannabinoids or uh, receiving them externally through a supplement like a, a complete whole hemp product.
1: Uh, So, there were several interesting papers published in Neuroendocrinology Letters. Uh, Ethan Russo, again, part of this as well. Like anything else we produce in our body, there are times, or as we age, we don't produce enough. And the cannabinoids we produce in our body, anandamide and 2-AG, no different here. We have now been able to use these as marker, biological markers, to determine certain illnesses and conditions. So there is a thing called endocannabinoid deficiency states, states where we don't have enough anandamide and 2-AG hitting all these receptors, helping to control physiological functioning. And we're finding endocannabinoid deficiency states in people who have migraines, fibromyalgia, irritable bowel syndrome, other treatment-resistant conditions, inflammatory and neurological conditions as well. But it didn't stop there with neuroendocrinology letters of 2014 and 2008. And uh, another interesting paper in Translational Psychiatry looked at the levels of anandamide in the body that when they got too low, they were statistically positive indicators for stress-induced anxiety. So again, an example of a biological marker, anandamide is to determine stress, anxiety in individuals. Uh, we look at people who have migraine headaches. We look at both in the blood and in the cerebral spinal fluid, and we see that the levels of anandamide are significantly decreased in people who have migraine headaches. Um, we look at this intimate relationship between omega-3 status. Now we know that omega-3s are useful to two reasons to the endocannabinoid system. A, it helps the cannabinoid receptors to be more active. And B, those omega-3s and phospholipids are used as backbone structures to produce cannabinoids in the body. So what do we see with people who have low omega-3 status? We see the same things we see in people who are endocannabinoid deficient. Pain, inflammation, stress, anxiety, depression, on and on and on. It is a perfect marriage between omega-3s and phytocannabinoids, which act like a multivitamin for the endocannabinoid system. But it doesn't stop there. I mean, when we look at bones. If you think calcium, magnesium, maniquinone 7, vitamin D, other accessory nutrients are important for bone health, well, when we look at postmenopausal women, we understand that the reason why we give them estrogen is because it influences the cells that build up bone, osteoblasts, and the cells that break down bone, osteoclasts. What does this have to do with the endocannabinoid system? We now know, and in a beautiful paper that was published um, in Journal of Endocrinology, talked all about this. One, if you s- stimulate the CB1 receptors, you start to stimulate the brain to bone communication by s- slowing down the bone uh, the brain from releasing bone breaking compounds like norepinephrine. And then if you stimulate the CB2 receptors, It increases osteoblasts, the bone makers, and decreases osteoclasts, the bone breakers. So you've got that aspect going for you. Uh, When we look at athletes, well, first of all, the endocannabinoid system is a system of recovery. It's adaptogenic. And so when we look at the runner's high, uh, we have to dismantle the runner's high being due to endorphins because... Another important paper in the Journal of Experimental Biology looked at various uh, 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 subjects, both humans, dogs, and ferrets, after strenuous treadmill exercise, that they noticed anandamide levels skyrocket. Hmm. And then they correlated anandamide levels skyrocketing with positive feelings. And the higher the anandamide levels, the better people felt. And that makes sense, because anandamide hits the receptors in the brain that are involved in reward, mood. And then we also understand that our cannabinoids we produce are quite promiscuous. They certainly touch the CB1 and CB2 receptors, but they hit other receptors as well. The 5-HT3, PPAR receptors, GABA receptors receptors that also control inflammation and pain and reward and anxiety and things of that nature. So what we're unraveling is as we are deficient in cannabinoids that we produce certain conditions will ensue and the top conditions include pain, inflammation, stress, anxiety, insomnia, ocular health, bone health, neurological and inflammatory conditions. These are all conditions that can be suitably treated with giving phytocannabinoids. And these are conditions that we see people who are endocannabinoid deficient.
0: Thanks, that's a terrific answer, I really appreciate it. I'm wondering if you can help us understand the difference between endorphins being a runner for over four decades. Uh And I always thought that's why we got so high after about 20 minutes of uh, working out. But uh, what's the difference between the endorphins and the anandamide?
1: Well, as I mentioned before, an endomide um, not only targets the CB1 receptor but also influences opioid and endorphin receptors.
0: Oh, okay, and, so it's it's more yeah. it's more yeah. comprehensive.
1: Absolutely, and there's some interesting papers uh, using electroacupuncture. acupuncture. Uh, certain key acupuncture points in the body uh, can absolutely turn on the signaling between the endocannabinoid system. Uh, And opioid and endorphin output. So we now know, and there was a great paper in PLOS One, the care and feeding of the endocannabinoid system and how herbs and nutrients and manipulation, chiropractic and acupuncture, can actually also influence endocannabinoid functioning. And in this particular case, uh, opioid and and endorphin output in the body.
0: Great. So... Earlier, you mentioned the large amount of disease conditions that the hemp would be useful for. And it's, I can't imagine anyone watching this who hasn't experienced any of those conditions or one of those conditions personally themselves. And if not, certainly someone they love. So let's discuss some of the specific details on how one would use that as a treatment with respect to um, dosing. So yeah, let's talk about dose and then we'll talk about the quality of the product too and how you differentiate that. But it, so, what is the typical dose and then how uh, is it possible to overdose?
1: Yeah. Well, again, getting back to the clinical applications, you know, when we talk about inflammation, uh, while we think curcumin, boswellia, fish oils, quercetin are all powerful anti inflammatory nutrients, which they are by entering the pathways, we now understand that the endocannabinoid system controls those pathways. And there's several really excellent papers that talk about the mechanisms of action on the analgesic and anti-inflammatory effects and the limitations to what we have today to control inflammation and pain. And we know inflammation is at the heart and soul of most disease conditions. The dosing that we look at in the literature, unfortunately, we rely on a lot of what GW Pharmaceuticals has done, but that is with single magic bullet isolated purified CBD. And we now know, and a paper in, in in out of Israel in 2015, showed full spectrum oils up against isolated CBD, and that the group with the full spectrum oil from a clinical outcome point of view was superior to the single magic bullet isolates. And so when we look at dosing while the bulk of the literature is in the couple of hundred milligram range. Um, there are many clinicians uh, that are using anywhere from 10 to 25 milligrams a day, and people are responding quite uh, uh, remarkable, which talks to the issue that you know you don't need a lot to jumpstart the body's endocannabinoid system. And this is not a numbers game. Uh, quite frankly, when we look at the uh, the bell-shaped curve with the isolates, the higher the doses, sometimes you decrease the effectiveness of the material. And so when you use a full-spectrum oil and you're getting the other components, this is superior, and I'll tell you why. People have been focusing on CBD, which is the wrong message. It's the myopic message. And think about it. CBD does not attach to the CB1 or CB2 receptors. If anything, CBD supports the CB1 receptors by preventing the breakdown of anandamide in our bodies and anandamide hits the cb1 receptor. So what about the lowly cb2 receptor that controls inflammatory cycling, pain signaling, insulin sensitivity, bone building? CBD does nothing for that. And so we need something of a cb2 agonist and luckily in the family of other phytocannabinoids in a full spectrum oil contains these other phytocannabinoids that complement to what CBD is not doing. And so we must get off this single magic bullet bandwagon. We must appreciate the full gamut of all of these phytocannabinoids as a whole and that they complement each other because CBD is not the answer to support the endocannabinoid system as a whole. Great. So, is it, is it
0: two questions? Uh, the milligram concentrations you were referring to, I'm assuming that's the total cannabinoids. And then the second question is it possible to overdose?
1: Um, well, the, the, one, the one I mentioned 10 to 25 milligrams, yes, it's primarily CBD. Uh, in a full spectrum oil, you'll get all the minor players in there. Can okay, you So you're, actually,
0: you're you're assaying just the CBD?
1: Uh, well, we assay so, so get- all photocannabinoids in the plant. And so we look at the full fingerprint. But since CBD is the most dominant cannabinoid in hemp, uh, when you process it, you do have much, much higher levels of CBD naturally. Uh, in the oil. And so providing 10 to 25 milligrams of CBD is the sweet spot uh, for most uh, conditions uh, in, in the trade. Um, the other question you asked, uh, can overdose, you overdose overdosing? Yeah. Um, like anything else uh, too much of anything can, mm-hmm. can be bad. It makes uh, sense. Luckily with full spectrum oils, you won't need to get there Certainly we've seen this using the CBD isolates and the drugs that are out there with just CBD in it, that you don't necessarily overdose, but you lose effectiveness. And then uh, there's been minor, at best, uh, toxicities or adverse reactions associated with CBD, which is a good thing. So um, I don't foresee anybody really overdosing on the standard dosages that we're recommending nor when we look at the data that's been published, up to 1,500 milligrams, 1,500 milligrams of CBD, chronically administered. So this is not an acute thing. Chronically administered over time, showed it was well tolerated, minimal to no adverse reactions on physiological functions, psychological functioning, uh, other parameters in the body, including blood pressure on down. So it is quite well tolerated in humans.
0: Great. Perfect answer. So let's get now into some of the practical implications of this good news. Uh, My additional understanding is that the cost of these oils are going to radically drop because in the past they were required to restrict the harvesting of the CBD from the non-flowering parts of the plant. And now that they can use the flowers, which have a much higher concentration, they're going to, it's going to make processing much easier. So maybe I've got that confused, if not, but uh, can you pr- please uh, respond to that?
1: Now, a- absolutely. In the past, prior to the signing of this bill, we were only allowed to pull the oil from the stalk and the stem of the plant uh, as the leaf, flower, and bud were off limits. With the thinking that it's got more THC in it, but hemp, by definition, under the Farm Act of 2014, distinguished and differentiated and defined it as cannabis sativa with less than 0.3% THC. So it didn't make any sense. Nevertheless, now that that's all gone and the Farm Bill of 2018 opened up the ability for processors to now use the leaf flower and bud where the cannabinoids are more concentrated, it's more economical now. And so what this will translate to is better-priced, more economically-priced products for the consumer, which is a good thing.
0: Great. <laughs> so, uh, just like in food, we know that it's much better to grow your own vegetables because you can be sure that it's organic and it's properly nurtured and harvested. So, similarly, even though the price is going to drop pretty dramatically, uh, the other implication of that law that I neglected to mention is that it is now legal in every state in the United States to grow hemp mm-hmm. in your backyard or in your in your apartment. Mm-hmm. So if one is doing that, and I, this is something I want to do for such a long time, and I've got an acre of land that I can plant and harvest uh, food from, uh, I'm definitely planning on doing this. And I'm wondering if you can provide us with instructions on how much you would harvest and, and the timing of that and to put into a smoothie. Yeah.
1: Well, uh, and that's interesting because the whole plant can be used um, to to juice or to put into smoothies would have you as, as a plant itself. Um, <clears throat> but it's interesting that while this bill has now allowed us farmers to grow and process and to cross state lines. Um, In Europe, we've been doing this for the past few decades uh, where we didn't have those restrictions. So one of the things that is immediately coming out of the gate is that the U.S. is going to want to make sure that growers here in uh, in the United States are using certified seeds. And what we mean is that seeds that have been used for products for human use for a very long time and since we've been doing it in Europe for decades, certified seeds from Europe are going to be preferred uh, to be used here in the United States until things kind of settle out. And so, you know, growing it for yourself would be wonderful. Uh, it is a weed, it's a short period of, of, of harvest. Uh, it grows very, very rapidly. Uh, July, August, September, we're looking at the, the, uh, that we do in Europe. Um, and yes, the whole plant can be used rather than just extracting the oils from it, which all the phytocannabinoids are lipids, so they're found in the oils, but the leaf flower and bud and stalks and stems can be juiced and put into smoothies as well, uh, or the oil can be used uh, as well. But in terms of your growing it and processing it, is it's rather easy uh, plant to grow uh, because it is a weed and Pardon
0: me. Imagine that. <laughs> but what type of dose? Would you, would you take like a bud or would you weigh it out of the plant material? If only, I mean, imagine it's not very much, maybe just a few grams.
1: Yeah, you it, don't need much. But I, I,
0: don't, I don't know the concentration to get 25 milligrams of the CBD or can, cannabinoids in that. Would you need a gram, five grams, 10 grams, 30,
1: an ounce? Well, the thing is when we talk about the raw plant, a lot of these cannabinoids are in their acidic form. Mm-hmm. So CBD is in CBDA, cannabidiol uh, acid. And to convert it to uh, uh, um, its usable form, the acid has to be uh, decarboxylated, has to be removed. So uh, the plant itself, uh, what you will benefit from a lot of the phytocannabinoids, it's going to be reliant on the body's ability to kind of process uh, from uh, the acidic forms that are in there. The Exposure to heat, light, moisture, air will decarboxylate a lot of them as well. So the more you kind of process it yourself, uh, the more usable some of those phytocannabinoids will be. So what does a pro- home processing look like? Well, I mean, you can take the leaf flower and bud, you can blend it uh, and store it in the refrigerator and over you know, a day or two of exposure to air and light and moisture and what have you, uh, it'll decarboxylate and you'll benefit more from that. Um, and again, how much do you get? 25 milligrams of CBD. That's a hard thing, thing to do with just juicing. Uh, yeah, or- well, what's your best guess?
0: I mean, is it, I mean, is, assuming you're using the concentrated form in the flowers, would it just be an ounce? Would it be half an ounce? I mean, I'm, su- I'm sure it's a relatively small cos- amount.
1: Yeah, it, w- it would be a small amount. I, I don't want to misquote myself and say the wrong thing, but uh, yeah, probably uh, uh, an ounce or two, uh, which should do the trick. And again, you don't need a lot to jumpstart the body's endocannabinoid system. So uh, this, again, is not a numbers game and, and small doses would you would re, uh, definitely uh, respond to.
0: And now you seem to be quite literate with the literature on this, and I'm particularly curious on the anti-inflammatory component because inflammation is really a central part of aging. And it's typically, there's a lot of things that contribute to inflammation, but we're finding out now that senescent cells, the senile cells that have stopped reproducing for a variety of reasons, pr- pr- have this inflammatory profile that produces inflammatory cytokines and of uh, uh, kappa beta and a whole variety of other inflammatory mediators. And I'm wondering what the mechanism is for CBD and the other cannabinoids uh, and lowering
1: inflammation. Yeah. Um, As I mentioned, the common anti-inflammatory nutrients we have in the marketplace, none will compare to what cannabinoids will do in the body, phytocannabinoids from from the plant. uh, you know, there was a initial paper in uh, Current Opinions in Clinical Nutrition and Metabolic Care of 2014 that talked about the endocannabinoid system being the emerging player in inflammation because it's intertwined with all of the inflammatory pathways, including the eicosanoid ones that the omega-3 fish oils influence. But then, in 2017, in the Journal of uh, Neuropsychopharmacology and, and Advances in and and in, uh, in Pharmacology they talk all about targeting the ECS for both inflammatory and neuropathic pain, as well as the mechanisms of action of how these cannabinoids and your endocannabinoid system act as analgesics, anti-inflammatory agents to uh, deal with, again, pain, inflammation. And it does so uh, by a number of mechanisms, not just the inflammatory pathways, but various neurotransmitters, Uh, that are released uh, in these pain pathways reducing inflammatory signaling both at the cell and signaling to the brain Uh, so it has a number of mechanisms but you cannot contend with any inflammatory condition unless you're supporting the endocannabinoid system and they can use interchangeably phytocannabinoids along with curcumin and boswellia and fish oils would be remarkable uh, as they uh, are complementary to each other by doing different things and so Again, uh, we, we must address the ECS in any inflammatory condition, whether it be irritable bowel syndrome uh, uh, to, to, to injuries and even inflammation in the brain, which is one of the hallmarks of all neurological diseases. Uh, look, in 2003, the United States government gets issued a patent on the neuroprotective effects of cannabinoids. And at that time, while well, the government has been telling us that phytocannabinoids are like LSD and heroin have no medical value. They go out and get a patent on the medical value. But that was followed up, and there's many papers uh, that talk all about the anti-inflammatory effects in the brain, in the nervous system of these cannabinoids and your endocannabinoid system, which are useful in treating neurological conditions and can be useful. Let's get out of the clinical area and look at the athlete uh, to prevent further brain damage. I mean, that patent in 2003 talked all about how non-psychoactive phytocannabinoids can reduce further damage to the brain after stroke or trauma and is useful in neurodegenerative diseases. And so the athlete and why water, the World Anti-Doping Association, took CBD off their ban list, because of the contact sports, whether it be football or martial arts or what have you, to reduce further damage neurologically. So um, it is a physiological system that we cannot ignore anymore. And it comes to all these inflammatory and pain conditions, there is nothing else like supporting the ECS with phytocannabinoids.
0: Well, thanks. I'd like to research this more and uh, plan on going to PubMed and looking it up, and I'm wondering if you could recommend the keywords. Would it be endocannabinoid system, phytocannabinoids, uh, endocannabinoids, and inflammation, and what are the keywords that you'd use to search?
1: I would just put in endocannabinoid system and pain, endocannabinoid system, and inflammation. Okay. You'll you'll see. I'll find it out. Yeah,
0: because I'm really curious about the mechanism because I, th- I think it ties in well and I haven't really seen, I'm I'm really pers- aggressively reviewing the anti-aging literature and I haven't seen any reference to, to this at all. And I think it's something that may have been missed, which is no, why I'm particularly curious.
1: Yeah, And that's the tragedy. Again, we've just dismantled the botanical travesty with the signing of the law. And now we have to dismantle the medical travesty. We have to study more of this here in the US uh, and we have to educate uh, students from high school to college to practitioner school. Uh, You can't ignore this anymore. This is, it's just absurd.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So one of the pervasive problems and conditions that you mentioned earlier that it's useful for is insomnia. And we know very clearly that if you're not sleeping well, you are just inevitably going to suffer in your health. It's going to deteriorate in some way, shape, or form. There's just almost a guarantee. So I'm wondering if you could recommend docious and more importantly, the timing on a full uh, spectrum hemp oil supplement.
1: Yes. And using the full spectrum uh, hemp oil supplement for insomnia, I would go to the higher end of the dose range we spoke about before, and that is looking at, you know, 25 milligram uh, range. Now, CBD at that range um, does a number of things. Number one, it reduces excitability in the brain. You know, it can reduce glutamate toxicity and uh, any excitatory type of conditioning. Secondly, CBD is involved in various neurotransmitters that are involved with the normal sleep cycle. So while it has a calming effect and helps to establish a normal sleep cycle, it's not necessarily a sedative. Um, and so you can use it with melatonin, you can use it with lavender, you can use it with chamomile and passion flower, it have you, but that's the dose. And I would do that, uh, towards the latter part of the day, whereas lower doses of CBD are more uh, stimulating, so to speak, and, um, more upregulating. And that would be a lower dose. So we're looking
0: at one hour, two hours, three hours, four hours before bedtime.
1: Yeah, at least, uh, an hour or two before bedtime. Absolutely. Okay.
0: Well, thanks. Yeah. That's perfect. Yeah. So I'm, again, in trying to identify uh, health or healthy, but optimal source, supple- sources of supplementation, uh, I'm wondering if there's a difference in the, the hemp, or the CBD supplements that are available now, advertise as CBD, that are extracted from hemp, <clears throat> will there be any difference in the newer ones that come out um, that are actually doing the processing from the hemp flowers, which, which have a higher concentration, other than the cost? Or are they going to be essentially the same product?
1: Well, the the good the good news again using the leaf flower and bud is that there are more of the terpene family in there. You didn't have much at all in the stalk and the stem. You had the phytocannabinoids there. So we will have a more concentrated source of not just phytocannabinoids, but terpenes, which are very complementary to the phytocannabinoids and the activity of uh, the plant. And again, that was all spoken to with Dr. Ethan Russo's paper in the British Journal of Pharmacology and talking about this entourage effect where we need all the phytocannabinoids and the terpenes present. So the consumer is benefiting the most. It reduced pricing uh, or more of a full spectrum of not just the phytocannabinoids, but also the terpenes in the plant that are clinically relevant.
0: And believe, hold on a second, I've got someone here Sorry, I'm doing an Hold on. Okay. Okay. Um. All right. <clears throat> so <clears throat> now I believe terpenes are a polyphenol, and I'm wondering if you could expand on the biological actions of terpenes.
1: Well. Everyone must understand that phytocannabinoids-
0: Darn, hold on before you answer. I thought I deleted that application. It's, a, it's software, I thought I deleted it. How did it get back up? It's, darn, okay. I don't know how it got up again. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot believe this. Okay, so you can answer the question. Fortunately, it it, it rang right between the que- question. That's and okay,
1: answer. no problem. Um, so people have to understand that phytocannabinoids are all terpene-like structures in the plant. The fact that they influence, touch, or attach to the CB one and CB two receptors in the body, they were reclassified as phytocannabinoids. And so, the terpenes are all important because many of them are phytocannabinoids and while they give rise to the smell and odor and taste of plants, uh, they have some really potent effects in the body from anti-cancer to anti-inflammatory, and again, all complementing the phytocannabinoids in the plant.
0: Okay, great. So are there any recommendations on how to identify a high quality product? I mean, obviously it should be organic, but are there anything on the label? Uh, that we need to look for to under to say this is this is a product that's good. Other than growing it yourself, which I think is probably the ideal.
1: Yeah. Well, um, <clears throat> so of the, the attributes that I tell consumers uh, to look for is um, being organic, being Kosher certified, uh, being non-GMO. Um, We also have to look at the fact that whether or not the material has been tested for pesticides and herbicides was it grown on on, uh, either organic or eco certified land? uh, Because uh, that's a major issue plaguing the marijuana sector. And it's no different here with hemp, and that the use of pesticides and herbicides are going to be an issue, and the use of GMO here in this country is going to be an issue as well. And so looking for non GMO, organic, kosher certified, looking for the full spectrum, um, trying to get an idea of where these materials are coming from, get to know your companies, because there's been a lot of characters in the trade right now. Um, People who don't even understand the dietary supplement industry, don't understand Deshaies law, uh, are blatantly breaking the law in terms of labeling. And so I look for companies that are doing the right thing also, and that is, They don't mention CBD, they talk about phytocannabinoids, they talk about hemp oil, they talk about nourishing the endocannabinoid system. This is a superior story to just CBD. And so those are the more reputable companies that are telling the right story that should have unraveled years ago, not just isolated CBD.
0: No question about it, and and that is really the key. Uh, So thank you for expanding on that. And uh, are there, Any other insights you'd like to share,
1: something that we left out? Well, there are two particular areas of interest to me. Uh, Number one, uh, the brain-gut immune connection. We know how important this connection is in the body, this triad of organ systems, of the brain pushing out neurotransmitters, the immune system pushing out immune immunotransmitters, and then the heart and soul, the gut. no longer is a a system of digestion, it's also your largest immune organ, and going deeper into the cellular structure, we find out hundreds of millions of neurons, your second brain. And so we now understand how the gut is involved with communicating with the brain and the immune system because it has brain cells and immune cells in it. So what does this have to do with the endocannabinoid system? Well, right smack in the middle is your endocannabinoid system orchestrating this tri-directional communication. And in a beautiful article in the uh, Gastroenterology 2014, the role of the ECS in the brain-gut axis, it now unraveled that the endocannabinoid system controls motility in the gut. It controls intestinal inflammation. It controls abdominal pain. It reduces the activity of the stress pathways, the HPA pathways. And then in the proceedings of the National Academy of Science and Cannabinoid Research, we got to unravel how anandamide participates in the immunological response in the gut, how the ECS reduces inflammation and disruptions in permeability in the gut, and how it controls uh, various other aspects of tolerance to foreign antigens. What was really unraveled, which is interesting, is that the communication of the endocannabinoid system, we call the endocannabidiome, and your microbiome, the probiotics, all had an interplay here with this mass communication between these three organ systems. The other interesting area, which is fascinating and it's unraveling as we speak, is the role of the endocannabinoid system in controlling consciousness and we mm. could, yeah we could look at consciousness in a variety of way the classical view the thoughts the sensations the feelings that one has uh, the neuroscientist point of view that you know all this communication is due to uh, uh, um, our awareness and our experiences and how they influence these neural pathways well there's been several papers that have been published uh, uh, looking at this very subject and In a paper in CNS, Neurological Discord and Drugs, talked all about how the endocannabinoid system modulates levels of consciousness, emotions, and likely dream uh, states. And there were other papers that show that under anesthesia, where you knock out consciousness and manipulating the endocannabinoid system, bringing animals out of of the unconscious state, how, in a sense, every thought, every feeling, every perception that we have, in one way, shape, or form, is influenced by our endocannabinoid system because we know the endocannabinoid system controls neurotransmission in the brain and is heavily concentrated in the brain, uh, controlling so many other uh, aspects of, of our well-being, our perceptions, our awareness, our thoughts. And so the endocannabinoid system, quite frankly, is an internal reflection of who we are And these are the two areas that uh, are really exciting that are unraveling as we speak.
0: So from your review of the literature, has there been any research that you're aware of that looks at the uh, endocannabinoid system or phytocannabinoid supplementation on the different stages
1: of sleep? Um, Not so much the different stages of sleep, although I can tell you that uh, I have worked with a couple of firms one in particular that has actually produced a app for your phone that when you put it in airplane mode so there's no signaling and you put this app you put it under your pillow it measures your sleep cycle and they work with insomniacs and you can see the disruptions of the sleep cycle in those with insomnia with the application of hemp oil rich in cbd uh, you can see a normalization of the sleep cycle. And so we're just in our beginning stages to look at how it, it influences various uh, states, alpha, beta, gamma states in the brain, and its regulation of the sleep cycle.
0: Yeah, I hadn't thought that there were any studies on it. I actually wear a device. It's a relatively new device. That's a four-lead EEG every night, which is far superior to putting lazy enough a phone under your head and and your pillow at night so it it very accurately assesses REM deep sleep and light sleep and when you're awake so I'll be able to do some research and I'll let you know and we'll probably have you back on again because what I neglected to mention at the beginning of the interview is that you've actually written a book it's not (laughs) published yet and you've invited me to write the forward which I have I haven't read your book so I can't make answer that question
1: yet but uh, what's the name of your book and what does it discuss and when will it be published yeah, uh, the name of the book is called "Road to Ananda." Uh, Ananda, the Sanskrit word for bliss, which is the word used to describe our first cannabinoid discovered, anandamide. Uh, "Road to Ananda," the simple guide to the endocannabinoid system, phytocannabinoids, and hemp. Um, which I have—I'm ecstatic to to to, to uh, announce that the person who's r- wrote the introduction to the book is Dr. Raphael Michelle. Wow. Congratulations. Yeah. Congratulations. The cover of the endocannabinous system. And I've, he is well known in the scholarly circles and there's certainly plenty of scholarly work out there, but we need to get this message, this story, uh, which is enormous out to the, the layman and practitioner out there who is really unaware still. And, uh, it was written with a lot of illustrations I, I brought it on an illustrator. And, uh, again, Dr. Michelle wrote the intro and, uh, uh, I need to get his work out there uh, to become a household word for all of us.
0: Great. Well, I'll likely write the foreword, but I'm looking forward to reviewing it. And then once it, when is it going to be published again?
1: Uh, we are publishing the book uh, the end of January, so it'll be available. Uh, oh,
0: January of 2019.
1: Yeah, so it'll okay. be available uh, the beginning of February. Okay, great. Thank you.
0: Wonderful. Anything else you'd like to add?
1: <laughs> well, you know, all I can say is, I've been in this industry for over 35 years. I'm a clinical nutritionist by trade. I have not seen any compounds, natural compounds, this clinically relevant since the inception of this of this industry. And I can tell you that targeting the endocannabinoid system, supporting it, will dominate medicine and nutrition over the next couple of decades and you can we just gave the viewers a glimpse, a very brief glimpse, of the enormous effects of the ECS that it has on the body. And not only internally, but to end with, you know, there are topical applications for phytocannabinoids because, again, our skin is one of our largest organs. And uh, it also has about 5 to 10 times more cannabinoids in it than we have in our brain. The CB1, CB2 receptors are, are are there as well. And when we look at the global picture of what is the subcutaneous endocannabinoid system doing, it's helping to maintain normal cell proliferation, differentiation, and immune competence. Why oncologists are gonna be very interested in that aspect, but then if you disrupt the endocannabinoid in the skin, there are three targeted areas for topical applications. One, obviously, is pain and inflammation because the CB2 receptors are there that control that. And so that is something that will blow away any of these compounds in the marketplace today for topical pain relief. And then we know certain cannabinoids strangle the sebaceous gland for acne, and certain cannabinoids also influence melanolysis, so age-spot development, anti-aging. So some very interesting things going on in the topical application area.
0: Very exciting, very exciting. Well, I can't thank you enough for sharing your wisdom with us and your understanding of the literature as it relates to the endocannabinoid systems and the potential benefits that it offers each and every one of us. So, magnificent news with the Farm Bill. Who who would have known that it would be legal in 2019 and we could have access to this? And it's even less expensive. Actually, what are the the question I asked you earlier, but I didn't get an answer, was the cost of the GW pharma yeah. product. I mean, how much does that thing cost per month? Uh,
1: tens of thousands of dollars. For- <laughs>
0: tens of thousands of dollars. You yeah. could treat yourself for multiple lifetimes. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> A Months worth of the pharmaceutical. I'll bet you GW Pharma was not pleased with the farm bill. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, um, there are rumblings behind closed doors that uh, they want to get into the dietary supplement space and they probably will at some point. I mean, uh, having drugs approved by FDA, they can petition the FDA uh, at lower doses than the drug doses uh, for dietary supplement and food use. And they have that capability of doing that if we really want wanted CBD on a label uh, okay. in the future.
0: So it won't change the product that we're able to purchase, but it mm-hmm. will change the manufacturers who are selling the product's ability to advertise that as an approved indication.
1: Correct. Yeah. Correct.
0: All right. So, you know, hopefully they make the investment and we can tell the truth because as you well know, and I certainly know, and most people watching this, many of the supplements, we are handcuffed. We cannot say a fraction of the things it does. Otherwise we're shut down or we go to jail.
1: Right. Well, that certainly would open up uh, at least what we can say, but whether GW does that and it gives us the ability to put CBD on on a front panel, call it a dietary supplement. I still am behind the story that mm-hmm. CBD is the minor minor right, right so yeah it doesn't matter doesn't matter, right.
0: Mm-hmm. I guess one last question too is, do you think that there is research going on now that will further elaborate or identify perhaps? other endocannabinoids other than CBD that are particularly potent and effective. I mean, it doesn't. it's just an intellectual curiosity because it doesn't really matter in the end run because you want the full spectrum.
1: Well, um, well, I, yeah, absolutely. First of all, uh, CBG is going to be hitting the marketplace soon, and that's cannabigerol. And cannabigerol is like the stem cell uh, phytocannabinoid of which all others are made from, THC to CBD. Uh, and cannabigerol has more potent effects than CBD in certain uh, conditions. Then we look at something like beta-caryophyllene, which is a minor phytocannabinoid, uh, but beta-caryophyllene is a potent CB2 agonist. So going back to this whole story that I was telling about how people who take CBD think they're nourishing the endocannabinoid system, well, again, we know that CBD does nothing for the CB2 uh, receptor. And so having beta caryophylline present is critical to give full CB1 and CB2 support in the human body. And so people are going to have to wake up and that CBD is not the whole story. It needs some of the other phytocannabinoids, which either are more potent or complementary to its activity in the body because CBD does not touch all the receptors
0: wonderful summary. And I thank you for sharing that. It is a a brilliant, beautiful, beautifully well stated. So thanks again for all your help. And um, we look forward, I look forward to reading your book, actually. (laughs) Thank you.
1: Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here.